Hello, everyone, and welcome to this event to discuss how can science and innovation support an ambitious plan for economic growth. Um, I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist of the Institute for Government, and we're delighted to be holding this event today in partnership with Imperial College. Um, we're going to kick off. Um, Chi is yet to arrive, but we believe is on her way. So I'll come to her uh, once she arrives. Um, but I think best to get underway uh, anyway. Um, the UK spends less on research and development than some other advanced economies, and we haven't had a unified industrial strategy since 2020. So the topic of conversation today is how could a future Labour government make best use of support for science and innovation as part of an ambitious plan for economic growth? Um, and to discuss this, I'm delighted we have uh, so far four, but ultimately hopefully five, <laughs> um, expert panellists uh, to join us. So... Um, Soon, hopefully, we'll have Chi Onwura, who is Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Innovation and has been MP for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central since 2010. We have Mary Ryan, who is Vice Provost Research and Enterprise at Imperial College London. On my right, we have Chris Giles, who until very recently was Economics Editor at the Financial Times, um, but has now shifted over to becoming an economics com commentator focusing on central banking. We have Catherine Bennett, who is CEO of the High Value Manufacturing Catapult. And last but not least, we have my colleague Giles Wilkes, who's a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, but also in his past life has advised a couple of different uh, governments of different colours uh, on industrial strategy and business policies. So, Mary, let me come to you first. What's the role of universities in science and innovation and using that to contribute to economic growth? And what would you want to see from a future Labour government? Yeah, I'm about to, I will answer, but she is about ah, to also appear. So I don't know if you so, want to uh, hold off for 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just about to respond to your opening comments, Chi, but um, <laughs> I thought that was going to project your policy, but... Uh, um, well, just let me give me a moment to sit down, sorry, I was just uh, taking up with... Uh, Shall I start and I'd say, just say a little bit about what I'd like her to say? <laughs> that would only kick off. Well, thank you. I, I guess that, you know, the UK, we know, has taken as read that we have excellent research-intensive universities across the UK, right? And I think that's really important to remember. And, and actually, we work together as a sector and as organisations really well. What I think we don't do at a political level is join up very well nationally in our research and innovation ecosystems. And, and that's a little bit bizarre. If you look at somewhere like the, the West Coast in the US or the Great Boston area, geographically, the whole of the UK fits into that space, right? And, and we talk a lot about regional, and regional development is important. But I think the important thing is how we think about the UK as a research innovation ecosystem more generally. So an interesting example of that, we've just about to launch a superconnector, so Anthony's here with um, Liverpool on AI translation. Um, so between London and Liverpool, bring that together. The value, I think, of the research that we do is, is partly in the discovery space. The, you know, trans translation and innovation and growth is part of a pipeline. And we have, no doubt, we're leading discovery um, research. It's important to protect that. But I think it's also really important to enable that translation to, to make a difference to people's lives. I mean, that's what we want to do and to make prosperity for the UK. Um, we sometimes hear that we're not very good at it. And I think that's also a misrepresentation of how the UK ecosystem works. In the last five years, Imperial Startups have raised over £600 million in investment. In 2021, our startups 
created 6,000 jobs. Um, and that's just imperial in a snapshot. So I think if you start to agglomerate that across the UK, the universities are delivering translation and innovation. Um, a couple of key examples from Imperial, but I'm, uh, any of my colleagues from the research intensive universities could have similar examples. Series Power is one of our startups. It, um, it's now valued at 700 million, listed on the FTSE 250, creating jobs across the UK and globally. Um, Pure Affinity, which is one of our startups in our White City Innovation District, and we can talk a little bit more about the local space there, is now manufacturing and um, building a manufacturing plant in Teesside. So that kind of national translation, I think, is really important. What I think we need to do and we'd like to see, and I speak for Imperial, but probably also for the sector, is long-term, stable <laughs> funding at an increased rate. At least 3% of GDP would be nice. Um, but that, that long-term understanding of where the funding is for that long-term planning and investment from the discovery through to translation piece. We need talent. Um, these are, we're addressing global challenges, you know, the climate crisis, biodiversity loss, thinking about deployment of AI in all that space. They're, they're global challenges, we need global talent, and we're in a global competition for talent. So pragmatic policies that are pro-innovation and, and pro-research. And I guess a global sense of collaboration. We are delighted to be back in Horizon. Um, we've all been arguing for that, and you know, the, the Labour Party has been a really strong advocate for that. So I guess... Um, Confirmation that's a stable partnership that we're planning for the long term, and it's not a we're in this horizon, but we're long term in Europe. But then more broadly, how do we enable global collaboration for some of these big challenges? Thank you very much. Chi. Thank you very much. And uh, ooh, my apologies uh, for being a, a few minutes late, but it's actually fantastic uh, to hear your opening remarks, uh, Mary. Um, and um, it's also great um, to be um, to hear from um, Imperial College. I'm an alumni, alumnus, actually, sorry, of, of Imperial. Um, but uh, and um, I'm very proud of that as part of my uh, role in the Labour Party uh, as the spokesperson, the Shadow Minister for Science, Innovation, and Technology. And I just want to um, start by um, by thanking the Institute for Government for organising this, and I think it's really important that we have the Institute for Government talking about science and uh, innovation policy as part of government policy. I think there's not enough uh, said about the role of science and innovation in government policy, and I want to, you know, you know I'm very excited how, how proud I am to be part of a Labour front bench led by Keir Starmer and and um, we're part of the Shadow Innovation, uh, Science Innovation and Technology team led by Peter Kai, and Peter will be speaking, I think, about an hour's time, um, which really recognises the role and importance of science and innovation in driving the growth that is such an important part of, um, of our mission uh, in government. I want to, you know, what I say to my constituents and what we recognise is that science and innovation isn't something that happens in an ivory tower somewhere. Science and innovation is something which is absolutely key to our economy. It's key to growth and it's key critically to improving people's lives, my constituents' lives, everybody's lives can and should be improved by science and innovation. And as a result, they're absolutely central to our labor missions for government, which includes the first mission, the, the, the growth uh, mission to secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. And given the huge potential that it holds for our country in 
know, I am really uh, yeah, excited about the ways in which we are, Labour is looking to uh, harness them to transform UK, the UK for the better. Um, I'll also just say briefly that I was really alarmed and dismayed by Michelle Donovan's report, report remarks. You know, it shows that the normal sort of the, the level of desperation to which the Conservative Party has been reduced if that they think that by making accusations that science is too woke, you know, is a credible economic policy. And dragging, you cannot, you know, you cannot depoliticize, as she said, science by trying to drag it into the culture wars. And you can't stand up for the facts, you know, which is what science is all about, uh, by spreading known falsehoods about your political rivals. And whilst that is an, you know, an act of sheer desperation, I'm afraid it does uh, sort of build on a government um, which has spent 13 years, you know, not not understanding or reflecting for all the warm words the potential that science and innovation you know holds for our country i mean see you know, science is about pushing back the, the the boundaries of human knowledge and i'd say engineering and engineer is about making that happen making that making the impact of that uh, progress for hum humanity but uh, with a government which is, you know, sort of lurching from crisis to crisis, changing its mind, going back on promises, not even, not the best scientific minds in the country uh, can predict what will happen and it provide the consistency, you know, that business and uh, um, uh, needs to invest in commercialising those scientific discoveries, uh, which will lead to um, the growth that we are so, uh, just so important right now. And so, yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example of Horizon. It's great that we're back in Horizon now, but really, did we have to have 139 weeks of uncertainty? And that is, you know, constituent businesses in Newcastle have lost out on leading projects on funding because of that. And that has damaged our se sector. So in contrast to the to Conservatives, we take a strategic approach to the economy and a strategic approach to science and innovation. A long-time strategic approach set out in our industrial strategy, which was launched a year ago. Johnny Reynolds was just talking about it. So we believe that government has a role to play. It's not just about getting out of the way. Uh, we have a role to play in empowering researchers, entrepreneurs and innovators, supporting their growth and the efforts to scale up, scale up through the commercialization of science and we will do that by investing for the long term uh, forging partnerships with biz between businesses and universities around the UK to tackle the challenges that we face and making the most of the UK's comparative advantages because as our industrial strategy highlights we do have great you know we have we have great advantages. We have a world-leading research base. We have excellent universities, you know, many of them in the north. In the north. Uh, we have skilled workforce. We have you know, some of the deepest capital markets uh, in the world to help create, new, which, be, which will bring together to help create new regional clusters and help rebalance the national economy. And science and innovation have a huge role to play in our plans to build up strong and self-sufficient regional economies. And as an MP from Newcastle, you know, we want strong and self-sufficient regional economies. We do not want to be dependent on handouts from Whitehall. Now, making that a reality does 
does require a strategic approach to investment, which the Conservatives have failed to deliver. Now, I know um, Mary's sort of going through this, but there are, as Mary's very aware, there are huge differences in R&D expenditure around the UK. In 2021, R&D performed in the Greater Southeast, so that's the East of England, Southeast, and London, was about 35 billion, over half the national total. Um, only 11 billion was performed in the in the North, and that's despite cities like Newcastle being home to leading research intensive civic universities. And just to bring that to sort of just to jobs, Cambridge has a population of 285,000 and that has as many private on the sector jobs as the whole of the North. You know, that's something we want to change. It's not about reducing the investment or the, the, the contribution that science and innovation makes to the regional economies of London or the South East, but it's about, um, to use a phrase, you like leveling up so that our um, across our country, just imagine that the contribution to our national growth if our regions were delivering uh, innovation and commercialization of that innovation in jobs on similar levels to Cambridge and other areas of the country. And there's, you know, that's why we have to, we have a lot of, and I visited Imperial recently, I was at uh, Cambridge uh, a few months ago, I've also been actually at um, Berkeley in the, in the US and MIT on the, and on, in the US to look at innovation systems so that we can learn the lessons from home and abroad about how we can build successful uh, innovation ecosystems so that we can realize our full growth so for example uh, you know we want to make sure that we can successfully commercialize new knowledge through sp startups and spin-outs and we uh, commissioned Lord Jim O'Neill uh, to report on this subject for us and he is also the leader of uh, Northern Gritstone which is raising uh, capital, venture capital for investment uh, in uh, startups and spin-outs in the in the, in the north, and in, and I've, you know, I've also seen uh, visiting MIT. It was you know it was really obviously that's on a scale that which we cannot replicate in any region. But I think there are there are elements of um, a culture that uh, respect respects champions supports innovation and its commercialization and that's felt throughout different institutions and institutions uh, which which address particular sector specific challenges when it comes to commercialization so commercializing nuclear fusion is different uh, from commercializing AI for example and we need to recognize that so by applying these lessons that we've learned at home and abroad we want to back British scientists and innovators to deliver on a long-term plan for growth that will restore pride and purpose to the to the country, and I'm really you know, keen to hear from you and from this excellent panel uh, how you know, test some of the ideas that we're having or coming up with how we can achieve that and deliver that should we be elected. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chi. Chris, um, Chi mentioned the examples of MIT, Berkeley, and Mary referred to sort of global battle for talent in this area and also global collaboration. How does the UK's approach to supporting science and innovation and translating that into economic growth compare to other countries that we learn? Uh, thanks, Deborah. Um, this is where I do the traditional cold host 
cold hard dose of reality moment uh, making everyone feel a little bit depressed i'm sorry about that and i'm going to as i apologize in advance but i will hopefully end on a slightly up more upbeat note when we look at money what do we spend in the uk on r d and science and we always say in fact jim said it in the introduction that we spend less than other countries it's not true we spend more than other OECD countries in the UK. We didn't think this was the case until a year ago, but the Office for National Statistics did a very big upward revision of the UK definition of R&D. And so now we spend 3% of national income or £66 billion on it. And that is the best, uh, the best international comparisons we currently have. So that is above the OECD average, and it is in line almost with Germany and other countries. So if we're talking about money, uh, we want, might want to think more about where it goes and what we get out of it rather than what we put in. If we're talking about, this is, this is total spending, if we talk about government money, um, again, in real terms, after adjusting for inflation since 2010, the amount of real money spent by the government on R&D has also risen from 12.4 billion in 2010 to the latest figures of 14.4 billion in 2010. 21. Most of that goes to the to the research councils or UKRI. At the moment, and particularly medical research, does get a lot of money in this country. So again, it's probably not best to start thinking about money. I think one of the things that we have noticed over the past three years, and both of the two previous speakers mentioned it, is stability and what uh, the university and other sectors can do. And rejoining re Horizon is clearly. Uh, helps in terms of longer-term funding and longer-term certainty, I think, for researchers. But the, the issue, I think, internationally is what you get out for what you put in. And while we do have uh, quite a few examples, as Mary was saying, of successful uh, ability to uh, convert our very, very high-quality science base into growth, I think that is where we need to keep looking for more progress and so it's really i think we need to be focusing less on the um amount of money that we're spending on um research and development we could turn ourselves into israel which spends about six percent five to six percent of gdp on r d and that might be something we can try and do and lever that off the back of our very very high quality research in universities uh, sector but I think in the short term, and certainly if the Labour government came in in the first five years, that would be an unlikely economic transition to make. So I think the most likely thing to happen is that we need to look very, very carefully at what we spend our money on and make sure we're getting the most out for what we put in. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, we might hopefully come back to that question of how we would get more out for what we're putting in later in the panel. Um, in fact, Catherine may have reflections on that. So. Catherine, from your experience, how at the moment are we translating that science and innovation strength from universities into real-world businesses and growth? Thanks, Jim. I mean, there are loads of examples, but there's always, always more to be done. Um, I noticed in Labour's recent industrial strategy document, they gave a very good summary of things that the manufacturing catapult does. Um, it says, with Labour, Britain can become a global leader in producing electric cars, in engineering nuclear technologies, and in developing hydrogen. Those are just some of the things that the catapult I have been honoured leading does. So the purpose of catapults, in case some of you are wondering what is this thing, um, along with eight other catapults, we're all about de-risking 
innovation. And we were established in 2011 after a review done by Peter Mandelson, um, who commissioned Herman Hauser to do a review about how you know innovation centres. Um, and you know it's been it was taken up by then Vince Cable, and you know we continue to thrive. We're funded through Innovate UK, and we are all about helping companies industrialise innovation, help commercialise those ideas, such as the ones that Mary talked about coming out of universities. We're made up of seven different centres across the UK, and since we were begun, we've now worked with over 26,000 companies, and very importantly, over half of those companies are actually SMEs. So we've got 22 sites, and I'm very proud that two of those sites are here in Liverpool, just in the Innovation Quarter near the, near the uh, cathedral, and 4,000 employees, and they're all dedicated to helping companies. Uh, I used to work in the private sector in industry, and I, I really see that with the colleagues I, I now work with, how determined they are to really help the nation. So just a few stats for you on manufacturing, which is what my Catapult's all about. We're responsible for 2.7 million jobs in this country and responsible for 66% of business expenditure in R&D. So absolutely a sector that fundamentally is worth investing in. I do agree with what Chris says about examination of value. But what we say is the funding that we do access through DCIT is on average leverages about twice, if not three times per pound put in. And the most important thing, as I said, I'm previously from business and many of my colleagues are, is that we encourage businesses to take that leap, to think about improving their production line, to use robots, but also to learn from others. And that's where the universities with whom, many of whom we partner, including we do a lot of work with Imperial, but there's many other universities, some of whom are anchor to many of my centres. It's really key that we uh, ensure businesses can get access to that research. So just an example for you, a company called Sheffield Footprint Tools, a 150-year-old family business, four generations of management there in the same company. They were on the brink of closure, and AMRC, our centre up in Rotherham, helped them put in robot cells, and productivity tripled. And before you all say, oh, that's robots and not jobs, actually what happened was they doubled their workforce because the productivity improved. So that's an example of value for money. Um, so interestingly, there was this report by Tony Blair, William Hague recently on the new national purpose, and it gave very strong endorsement for science and technology centres and how it can help drive innovation. And I suppose I would support that, wouldn't I? But the most important thing is um, to ensure that what we do provides value for the taxpayer. And uh, previous panels have mentioned the importance of regional focus on innovation. So the first investment zone announced in this country was alongside AMRC in Rotherham, um, together with a big announcement by Boeing, huge investment that's called the Compass Programme. Another example, and I know the Vice-Chancellor of University of Bristol is in the room, so I'm going to mention this even, um, <laughs> the £200 million Isambard supercomputer project, which I'm very proud the National Composite Centre in Bristol is going to be working with. And we wouldn't have that if we didn't have that regional participation. But just going back to your question, Gemma, you know, what is the, you know, what are these examples that I've been quoting to you today? How can that help with formulate future government policy? Well, I have to say the seven centres within our catapult, all very independent with their own strong boards, their own business and non-exec directors, 
very focused on our regional areas and we're endeavouring to work together more collaboratively. Net zero, of course, one of those, how we can help national infrastructure, another one. It's not easy sometimes to collaborate. There's sometimes competition and partnership is key. Completely agree with the previous comments made about Horizon. Innovation and science doesn't stop at a country boundary. We're very much focused on working with partners overseas and I do hope a potential future Labour government will continue on this embracing of the international dynamic. And also, I've heard already at other fringe meetings here in Liverpool, businesses have been saying they need stability and consistency, as Chi said, and, you know, 100% endorse that. And of course, government does have a role to play in the long term. I'm delighted that my catapult, we've recently signed a new five-year deal with Innovate UK. You'll be pleased to hear we were kept up to the wire in terms of the deliverables that we've got to do. Value for taxpayers' money is fundamental to all we do. But there's always, as I said at the beginning, more that can be done. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Catherine. Um, I should have said at the beginning, unfortunately, Chi is going to have to leave a little bit early, I believe. So uh, just to say uh, she's not walking out because she's not interested in the conversation. <laughs> unfortunately, has to be somewhere else. Um, but Giles, let me come to you finally. Um, we've had a lot of governments in the UK with one form or another of strategy on science and innovation and growth. What could a future Labour government learn from all of that about what to do and what not to do? Uh, thank you, Gemma. I mean, number one, I mean, since 2010, we've had, uh, we inherited a plan from Peter Manson, scrapped it, brought in something called a plan for growth in 2011, kind of forgot about it. Having an industrial strategy from 2012 to 15, such then banned the um, mention of the phrase industrial strategy. There was then something called the productivity plan under George Osborne, which I imagine he would like to... Um, delete from the National Archives because productivity hasn't been great since then. Uh, there's, there's an industrial strategy from 2017 to 2020, which counts as longevity in this story. Um, I'm very pleased with that because I did work on it, but that was sort of scrapped for another thing called the Plan for Growth in 2021, um, which then was overtaken by the 12 nanosecond long growth plan under Liz Trust. And um, I don't really know what we have now, but we've had so many different things that it doesn't really matter precisely what Labour does. I mean, the idea that industrial strategy or science strategy needs to be a very a precision game where you need your data all lined up perfectly is a bit of a myth. You just need to stick to something that's broadly right, and that would be a huge improvement. Um, now, some of the things that um, Chris has mentioned are... Um, uh, are good, you know, there have been good things. We've heard two of them here, but there's been a steadyish increase in public sector support for R&D, and there has been some longevity in institutions. But I, I think that one of the things that Labour could easily do is get rid of a certain kind of mindset that takes over people in the science innovation space, which is that, um, yeah, of course, te technological innovation is why we're 10 times better off than we were 200 years ago. There's no doubt. That's what inventions that explain that. But it's not a lack of it that in the last 15 years explains why our productivity suddenly ground to a halt. The last 15 years haven't been a time where science has just stopped moving. And there is the, the myth that I'd like to attack is the idea that it's a linear kind of assembly line of ideas into commercialization, into creating venture capital-backed trillion-pound companies is the, is the thing that we're aiming for. I mean, that would be great. It would be great if we created our own Googles and SpaceXs and so forth. But the most important statistic in science and innovation and growth is 2%, which is the amount by which the inventor of an innovation benefits from its benefits. So 
you create Google search or something like that. And of course, the company that makes it becomes much more valuable, but the huge benefit comes from all the users of it. And so adoption, diffusion, people learning how to take on innovations is the most important thing, which is why there are certain really important principles that I think, I hope, Labour will be better at pursuing than necessarily all of the governments of the past. And they would be, number one, openness, networks, being open to other people's ideas is absolutely critical. You do not have to have invented the, uh, the steam engine or electricity to benefit from it. You just need to know how to accept it. You need to have good absorptive um, capacity. So you need a highly educated workforce, regardless of whether they're inventing things themselves. And that's where R&D can be really important too. It's not just about inventing the thing yourself, but having the capacity to absorb the great ideas that are being made elsewhere. And I'd say also the application of science to really important national challenges. The, set, the fact that Labour is more interested in the challenge-based ideas, mission-based policy is really, really important because I think one of the things we started realising in the last few years is you shouldn't be entirely use-blind to where science and technology goes. Great invention can go into something like developing better sales algorithms or finding ways of recommending a better video to users. I mean, this is all great and people can make money out of it, but what's going to really make a difference in the next few decades is whether we can apply science to the really important wicked problems that the world has connected to most obviously of all climate change but our aging society the, the future of transport the sort of cleaning up of environmental waste we need people who are willing to try to direct science to a certain degree and i'd say the secret to a lot of that is the creation of institutions like the high the, the manufacturing catapults and so forth if we can create institutions that have a purpose that have stable funding that stick to them within a stable set, set of frameworks then who knows, in 10 years' time, you might even hear Chris giving an optimistic speech. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Giles. Um, actually, first, I want to come to you, Chi, on that question. How, how does Labour's thinking about science and innovation fit within the broader ambitions for government and linking up to things like education policy, how Labour's going to approach other big societal challenges? How does this fit within that? Well, science and innovation, um, and I think a lot of the comments sort of from the panel sort of emphasize the, so the key message which is that science and innovation is for everybody you know it is it is, for, it is part of everyone's lives and that is you know very general statements but it is a uh, it is an important part of each of our five missions and also each of our uh, industrial strategy uh, missions as well and so, yeah, so I, I talked a bit about how science and innovation being key to growth um, yeah, and, and about the reasons for that and um, our nhs mission and nhs fit for the future so i just want to say also if you, if you listen to uh, rachel new speech um, you'll hear her talking about the importance of science just and entrepreneurs and inventors but um the nhs fit for the future um part a big part of that and i think the points that uh, giles was making about diffusion and adoption we have uh, the nhs is it's actually relatively slow in adopting innovation even innovation that happens here and what we, we need to change that. What, one of the, some of the things that West Streeting is is, uh, is talking about, for example, you know, a workforce plan, which means that the NHS can do its day job and therefore has the capacity, more capacity, the capacity to absorb innovation is critical to its take up and to changing you know, in, you know, productivity. Because I think you know, I'm a, everyone always says technology moves so quickly, governments can't put up, keep up all that, you know. 
part of that is true, but actually, technology adoption can move pretty slowly, and governments can not only keep up, but they can actually, you know, drive it, drive it through. So, so NHS fit for the future. Oh, you know, our education mission around uh, potential uh, for, for realizing everyone's potential. You know, as, a, as a woman engineer, um, I yeah, I know um, that how few women engineers there are, uh, but and how we could transform our sort of productivity and uh, innovation uh, capacity if science represented our um, country. You know, in terms of uh, the, the women, minorities, uh, uh, those with disabilities. Etc. And then obviously, um, a, a, a clean energy superpower, science and innovation is a, yeah, that, that is, yeah, I think we need to, uh, science doesn't hold all the answers to climate change. Obviously, there is behavioral change and structural change, but science can take a lot of the, of, of the strain, yeah, actually, more, more innovation can take a lot of the strange strain over working people in, in, off working people in the cost of living crisis by reducing the cost of batteries, reducing the cost of, of insulation. How, I, mean, I, I was talking to um, a small company um, who has, who can reduce, just buy smart ventilators in existing homes, that's one of the key challenges, they can reduce en energy consumption by uh, 7% a year now, which is not, not a huge amount, but that actually can be, make a huge difference overall so yeah so yeah, and then and then i don't want to talk forever I, I do i do have to go but when it comes to the machinery of government um and um you know a public sector which has been so denuded of not only financial support but actually you know moral support in mean, the way in which this government talks about our public servants talks about civil servants talks about nhs workers uh, um you know that is you know, that it doesn't allow the capacity, doesn't enable the capacity for the public sector to absorb innovation and you know, there are so many gains to be made by effective data sharing, effective and trusted data sharing across government. For example, uh, AI can be a force for uh, good in delivering better public, better and individually targeted public services, for example, if it is trusted and if it is properly uh, regulated and that might you know my colleague Matt Roder who's the new AI shadow minister is looking at so so science you know, science and technology is a part of all our uh, you know sort of key ways in which we are going to uh, give Britain its future back what is really needed just to contrast with the current government is a is a government which understands the contribution that science and innovation can make and is prepared to put in place the long-term policies and particularly consistent sort of funding uh, mechanisms and signals uh, which to enable our great scientists and also our great business people and entrepreneurs uh, to uh, go out and build businesses and you know, treatments, etc., which transform the world. And I just want to say a quick word for synthetic biology or biological engineering because you know that's a whole new enabling area of science which can help you know, transform the transform the NHS as well as our, you know, manufacturing and building and everything. Thank you very much. Um, Mary, do you agree with Giles's take that perhaps we're not making as much of the great things that are coming out of our universities as possible? Are, is there work you're doing in that area? Is there more that you think is needed there? Okay. So in, I agree in part. I think we can, we can definitely do more. I'm, we're in danger of being in heated agreement on that. <laughs> I'm slightly concerned about it. Um, I guess a couple of things. To, mm. She effectively talked about inclusive innovation. And I think it's really important that we fully 
um, take advantage of all the talent that is in the UK and, and have opportunities for, for all of our business, not just, be, not just for a moral, it's sometimes presented as a moral good, mm -hmm. which that's true, but it's actually a really strong business case that yes. diversity of thoughts will give us better outcomes. So we really, across the spectrum, need to have more inclusion in, in science and technology. Um, and you also differentiate between the use of the word innovation and science and technology, and we tend to use them interchangeably, and, and they're not interchangeable. You know, innovation mm -hmm. is very specific. You know, you need to have ideas and you need to have implementation, and it's that implementation, I think, which is what yeah. Charles was speaking to. How do you really create innovation from the brilliant science that we have? So how do you implement it more broadly? Um, there are a few things. Um, we've heard lots of comparisons to MIT and, and hmm. San Francisco, and one of the big differences is in the investment mindset in the States is very different. So in venture capital, London is a, you know, it has a lot of venture capital. Not a lot of it goes into what you might call deep tech, which are some of yeah. these you know, really challenging innovations. Over 90% of all that funding goes to software and algorithms, um, which will make a lot of investment return. But they're not going to solve these big challenges, the global challenges that we've been talking about. So I think there is a there is a shift we need with the investment community. And part of that is about training, which I think speaks a little bit to, you know, openness, networks and workforce training, not just workforce training, but investor training. Um, I think that's really critical and enabling. I don't want to frame this in a risk taking, but it's an it's an education around measured risk and technology risk and technology readiness and what that means. And I think part of that is also our job to enable that and, and give the right technology advice as a community. Um, NHS adoption is something we've talked about a lot and how you enable that. One of the things we're doing, for example, is helping train our clinicians in AI. So, you know, we have a whole a great suite of training courses for our own students. How do we work with our NHS trust so that clinicians understand that? So it's not, we're not throwing technology over the fence to them. We're helping them understand where in the field can it help. If it comes into clinic, how does that interface with the human, right? And I think some of those, not just training and ability, but the concerns around interface of technology and, and um displacement of human judgment I think is, is a concern and we need to work with that it's a bit like um, the comment on robotics doubling it doesn't it's not displacing it's how you bring it and, and add that value um, and I strongly agree with this point about application to challenge I think one of the having an industrial strategy that focuses on the challenges that pulls through the science um, and helps us have I'm, I'm going to use a slightly oxymoronic phrase of ambitious stability so i think we need we need that <laughs> phrase i might steal it you can have it <laughs> i think that's it's really important that we have that underlying we know where we're going we've got stability mm. but we, we are raising the bar we mm. do recognize mm. we can be leaders in the green revolution in application of ice synthetic biology arguably was invented in the uk right it's one of these things <laughs> where we've got the really strong grounding yes i yeah. might say it here but others would argue with me. <laughs> um but but i think there is that absorptive capacity where do the inventions go and and we are seeing globally you know the inflation reduction act um policies in europe that are being very pro-innovation a little i don't want to say isolationist but definitely protecting markets hmm. we are seeing um for example active poaching of our startups that come out of imperial you know people are coming from central europe from the us why don't you move your technology there so we need to really think about in the UK, what is the, the national ecosystem that allows from all of our universities, startups to grow and flourish across the system, right? So having that, you know, the innovation bridges. So if there's a, you know, hydrogen startup in Imperial, 
for the inventors to know where do we go when we get to a scale? Where is that place in the UK where is the best place for my company to grow? I think that kind of national absorption and development is really critical. I'm afraid I have to leave. I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm afraid of audience questions. <laughs> I love them, indeed. <laughs> but I'm afraid I don't have to Thank go to the next event. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Great. So, excellent. Lots of questions. Um, I'll take these two here first, and then the gentleman in the middle. Sure, questions possible. Uh, sorry, could you just wait for yeah. me? Hi, uh, Rashid Palmer from British Computer Society. The question I'd like to ask the panel is: um, As you think about science and innovation, um, do you believe we've got sufficient trust in our scientists? Or has that trust eroded? And is that one of the systemic issues that means that businesses, especially SMEs, don't collaborate enough with um, with research institutions, great institutions like Imperial or Cambridge, um, and so miss out on the innovation potential for their businesses? Hi, I'm Tom Westhoff, work at Toronto Institute on Science and Tech. I was one of the co-authors of the papers. Catherine, kind of shout out, but didn't pay for that, I promise. Um, I've got a question about interdisciplinary skills. Um, so... There's a lot of areas now where general purpose technologies are coming through and there's not necessarily the right um, talent at the intersection of things like AI and, and, and biostatistics and um, quantum and cybersecurity. And so I guess I'm wondering for the panelists, do they have a view on like what the best approach is to trying to very quickly develop those skills? Because it seems like a big gap at the moment and something that I think that, you know, definitely universities, um, HUMC and other places will be working on. Thank you. And then, uh, hi, Dylan Underhill, uh, Cruelty Free International. Um, the panel may be relieved to know that I'm not going to ask a question directly about animal testing. Um, I, I just wanted to ask whether the panel has a view on the appropriateness of kind of government intervention in the, the sort of direction of travel of science and innovation in tackling specific missions. So there's lots of conversation about creating the right context um, etc. Um, but you know, we we would like to see um, the removal of animal testing being one of the kind of missions of science and innovation. Uh, the pushback we sometimes get is that politics should follow science. Uh, we dis disagree. I'd just like to get a sense from the panel um, their view on that. Thank you very much. Um, so three questions there. One about trust in scientists. Um, second from Tom about um, interdisciplinary skills needed to adopt a lot of these technologies and the third one about the appropriateness of government intervention in the direction of travel and in science and innovation um, and perhaps I might add to that final question because then it's one that we've had in our minds the extent to which governments need to make choices and shut down options and uh, proactively direct uh, funding and other resources towards particular areas I'd be interested in your, your views on that Mariel, go first. Okay, the, the trust question. I think I think there is still trust in the UK in science. Uh, all surveys suggest that the most trusted professions are, you know, at the top. Science, academics, still is still there. Um, we have to make sure we maintain that. Right? I think there's an onus on the academic and the science community to make sure we are honest and open and transparent, and we, you know, we do things responsibly. But we are in, in a good place. But we need to maintain that. I think a broader challenge around um, engagement is 
sometimes it's quite opaque and difficult to navigate. Right? How do you find the right place? Or how do you open up communities and, and really enable closer interactions? We are, as organizations set up to do that really well with big corporates, right? So we know how to do that. We've been doing it for a long time. Access with smaller companies to our facilities or training or talent when they haven't got a lot of resource either in time or money, we have to think about new models for that. We're doing some of that on our White City campus in, in, in you know, Hammersmith, um, where we have set up models and events where we bring the whole community together. So around, if you haven't been to White City, I, I encourage you to, to visit around our campus. There are now 400 SMEs that have started their businesses there. One of the reasons is that they are, we've made it very easy for them to come onto our campus to access our facilities, to be part of a broader community. That takes a lot of effort, right, to do that. And I think it, but it's part of this continued building trust and building the ecosystem. So I think it's not trust, I think it's enabling, and we've all got work to do on, on all sides. Um, interdisciplinary skills, you are right. We need to do more of that. But I think it's, it's a little bit about um, not throwing away the disciplinarity, Right, because if you haven't got the strong core disciplines, right, you don't get you can't put the layer on top of it. So it's really, it, how do you create T-shaped individuals? Right, they've got a depth of knowledge and they understand across the piece. So I mean, I just talked about bringing clinicians in to learn about AI at Imperial. We run the UKRI AI in Healthcare doctoral program, um, and in that program we have clinician scientists doing PhDs in computing. Right, so that, but that only touches a small piece of the workforce. Right. So, and if you look at, for example, the, the green transition, the energy transition, 90% of new jobs are going to be non-graduate jobs, right? But the technology is, you know, bleeding edge coming out of universities. How do we do that education? So where are the partnerships? How do we work with FE colleges and, and, and apprenticeships to make sure that that is translated across the piece? I think interdisciplinary is, is key. Our students want it, right? Our new students come in and go, how do we, how do we, so I'm a material scientist, how do I learn about AI or how do I learn about um, synthetic biology? So creating that model to do that, increasingly important. So I went heated agreement. Um, specific missions, I think I already said this, I think government should be more interventionalist. I'm, I'm using my words carefully. I don't want them to intervene too much in how we do the research, but setting the mission challenges, um, really identifying government priorities. Um, and I think that is going to be a balance. I mean, that's a political question right because they're balancing much of many different areas but knowing that actually there is a policy that's going to go from enabling the fundamental research pulling through translation long-term stability and regulation policy framework investment i think we should have some very clear strategic areas in that space thank you chris I'm going to try and sort of blend all of these questions together, and I'm going to use economics as a, an example of a science or social science, uh, because I know it much better than, than the hard sciences, and I know what's going on in ac academia. There's a repl replicability crisis in economics at the moment. We can't, we can't seem to replicate the results that we get, particularly in uh, empirical work. And we have a lot of economics in academia, which is really not of great value to lots of people. Uh, and I'd say the key problem there are the incentives given to academics through the assessment process and the research, uh, the REF, the way they are um, evaluated such that impact and what, what matters ultimately to society is much, given much lower weight than whether you can get into econometrica or not. Um, so I do think uh, 
all of this comes back to so things like um, interdisciplinarity doesn't get uh, isn't valued enough. Uh, it's hard to get academics to come out of their shell and engage with public debates uh, in this country more than it is, let's say, in the US. Uh, and it is something that UKRI and the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council, should be really worried about because I think that's the way that you want to get universities and our top brains to engage more with the problems we've got today. And so uh, there is work for government to do that. Catherine. So trust in our scientists. Um, I love the fact that the word engineer comes from ingenuity. I mean, um, um, you know, engineers love to find solutions. I absolutely think that we need to get them more into the limelight. Now, COVID obviously did its fair share of that. And one of my centres, CPI up in the northeast, was very involved in the vaccines task force. So I think that changed the dimension slightly. It did demonstrate that we have amazing capabilities in our country. And another example for you, the rack concrete issue, obviously very, very live still at the moment. Um, MTC and Coventry have huge expertise in uh, gauges and assessing, you know, if there's rack concrete in a certain part of the building. And again, that came to the fore suddenly. So, so you know, and part of my job is to advocate and explain the work that, that the capacity we have. But I do feel, you know, we need more of a spotlight on the good things our scientists do. In terms of intersectional skills, Tom, I mean, in the net zero area, we hear from our customers that we work with, there's something like 170,000 jobs potentially in the net zero area. So another thing that we do is foresighting. And we, when we were set up, we were just meant to be dealing with technology. But now we've actually adapted to have to do a lot on skills because you can't have one without the other. Um, so I think there's a huge role that can be done more collaboratively with government leadership the whole, I know this panel isn't about skills, it's a bit of a muddle. Um, and there's so much good work that can be done if we combine a little bit more. And I think net zero area is a key area for us. Um, and then in Dylan's question, so our centre CPI has been doing amazing amount of work on alternative forms of food production. I don't know if you know much about this. I mean, looking, you know, Chi mentioned bioengineering, so we can convert CO2 into food products by fermentation. There's other ways of making food. I'm afraid I'm not an expert on uh, sort of animal testing, and I know you didn't ask us about that, but the question was about missions. And I feel that we have to look at what our stakeholders are saying to us. Our customers, our partners, and our employees are all very, very focused on these topics, and we need to respond. Charles, do you want to yeah, just, a, just a couple of quick ones, because I think we've had some really great answers to some of these. So um, I would say on Tom's point about interdisciplinarianism, that's the longest word I'll use. <laughs> um, uh, I understand from what I've read of innovation, that is where the magic happens. The magic happens when an expert here and an expert there combine some idea together. And you'll see this in a lot of the great innovations. The ones that we carry around in our pockets are basically consequences of all sorts of different great things coming together so we do need to encourage that more i mean, i'll put a, sh a shout out for a few things that already exist we already have things called knowledge transfer networks and knowledge transfer partnerships that are both funded by innovate uk and before that by when it was called the technology strategy board and i feel very comfortable mentioning this because it was created under probably patricia hewitt and it's another example that we do sometimes manage to keep things going. Sometimes we don't tell everybody about them. They seem to survive okay. But I do think I'm slightly touching on Gemma's point about choices. 
we need to be aware of what things are working really well. I would always mention the catapult system first of all and boost them a little bit rather than keep trying to come up with new ideas. Um, but this is just reiterating my point about openness. You can't really predict where that magic happens. We need to just keep the sort of ferment of people moving through this country. This should be an entrepot for ideas, the UK. It should be a place where everybody feels really comfortable coming. And um, we, if we do that, the magic will happen. I mean, the final thing about choices, I mean, I do agree that's what being strategic means. You've got to be making choices. But it does mean the politicians need to give cover for there being failures. Because sometimes you make choices and it goes wrong. And the problem we have in this country, I think, is that we give so little margin for error in our political system. We jump up and down on it when it goes wrong. We should actually welcome people making a few bets and expect some of them to be failed. And we need a political system that allows for that. Thank you. I think we have time for probably a couple more questions before we get to the end of our time. So, yes, the lady in pink. Uh, thank you, um, Catherine. Thank you for the shout out. Evelyn Welsh, the um, Vice Chancellor of the University of Bristol. Uh, I was in London for 20 years, and for 20 years I thought, actually, what was wrong with the Golden Triangle? Um, absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. But could I ask you, the panel, to pick up Cheese Challenge, which is we have to make choices. Um, where does geography mm. come in? Thank you very much. And one more question here. Well, I'll follow that because I used to be in Bristol. I'm now Provost Chancellor here in Liverpool. <laughs> uh, and I think geography is everything. Uh, we hear a lot about levelling up. Um, I think Mary's been very generous in talking about the need for, um, for, for very good economic reasons, actually, for the country, making use of all regions of the country. I, I absolutely see that. I'm really interested if the panel could come up with one idea that will move us forward beyond talking about levelling up and actually making it happen. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And that's probably a very good place to end on your, your people's one big idea. So, Mary, I'll come to you. I do go in reverse. Either way. So I'll let you <laughs> sometime for thought. I'll put uh, my colleague Giles on the spot. Oh, sure. I was really relying on that five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's been a lot more attention on this question of R&D and its um, lack of sort of uh, geographic bias. You'll probably be aware of the piece by Richard Jones and Tom Forth sort of laying this out in excruciating detail. And um, probably, I don't know whether you're aware of the small efforts the government has made, like the Strength in Places Fund that was introduced as part of UKRI. So the government has spotted it. And, um, and I think has probably made insufficient efforts to to do something about it. Now, the one thing I'd be slightly cautious about is R&D is, as I believe we heard from Catherine, really very weighted towards manufacturing. And manufacturing is 10 12% of the economy. So if you say the entire manufacturing, the, the R&D budget needs to better reflect exactly where everything happens, it will become a kind of R&D into manufacturing budget. And I don't know well enough the whole way the whole system works to know how disruptive that would be, but it would be effectively saying our R&D budget ought to be about pharmaceuticals, high-value manufacturing, computer, digital, and that would be, that's about 60-70% of where it all is. So that would, be a, that would be a choice. It would be a really big choice. But effectively, to say that we need to replicate where the private sector is doing its R&D, like in your corner of the world down with all that fantastic aerospace stuff, would be effectively to make a decision that I would love to speak to a bunch of scientists first and ask why exactly is that not currently happening? And I think a lot of them would say, because I don't actually want all of my R&D to be immediately taken up by companies anyway. And there's a whole space for innovation invention and 
inspiration that I want to be away from that. So I do agree that we could be doing better at that. But I also worry that if we're too mechanistic about it and just notice where all these great clusters of industrial excellence are and say that's where our R&D should be, we might make some serious mistakes too. Um, and I think that's some... Um, yeah, that, that would be my major point, a slightly sort of civil service is it more complicated than that point? But we, the other obvious answer, the, the big thing we haven't done, but it isn't an original point, is devolution. I mean, we just need to be putting the, these decisions into local hands with local tax-raising powers and allow them to be taking some of the risks. It shouldn't be coming from the centre. Um, I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, my, the one thing, um, SMEs. I, I don't want a national policy on SMEs, but I think um, we need to have a kind of national campaign about SMEs to try and get more interventions there. And that can be ones that are existing or ones that are just beginning. And I, I think that's one area, every single area I deal with um, SMEs is an issue. In our sector, we I mentioned that we, we do a lot of work with SMEs, but we are need touching the surface. Um, in terms of geography, what I found very interesting is I mentioned we have 22 sites. Well, lots of other parts of the UK would love a catapult or one of our centres. And it's quite difficult. So one of my other CEOs is at the back of the room, actually, Steve from the AMRC in Sheffield. And we're always being asked, you know, can, I, can we have a centre? Can we have a catapult? And we have to decide where the need is. We obviously look at the business need. But we, the other thing we look at, going back to Giles's point, is is there, national, is there regional momentum? Are the partners really working together well? Because that really, really helps. So we're looking at doing some projects in Northern Ireland at the moment because there's real momentum there. So I'm, the answer probably, Evelyn, is it's horses for courses, but local partnerships really help organisations like myself make decisions. So I can say the unpopular thing first, that most uh, R&D is private sector money, not government money. And uh, I would worry if government was trying to direct it to one geography, not another. And so if government had tried to stop AstraZeneca, one of our largest uh, companies with most R&D in the country, moving from Cheshire to Cambridge, uh, I think it would have moved from Cheshire to somewhere outside the UK. And that would have been worse uh, for all of us. So um, I, I do worry with some of our concern about levelling up for the sake of trying to shift shift activity within the UK, where it's not just the UK that is uh, that we're competing with, and it's not the only location in the world. My one idea would be greater devolution. I know everyone says this, but I think particularly in planning and allowing things to happen, if Suffolk doesn't want anything to happen in Suffolk, let Suffolk just not do very well. But we can have the great cities of the north who do want things to happen there and make it, make it easier for business and for uh, things to thrive there. The second panel I've done today, the second time Suffolk and planning has come up. There's something, there's something going on there. Um, well, I first want to say I, I think there has been too much, um, and I'm going to, I'm using my words carefully. But almost small-minded ideology around this, in that there's a sense that one size will fit all in this space, and that there's, there's something that is happens in Cambridge, we can just replicate that. We're not going to, and we shouldn't try to. So I think the the, the geography, the place, I think is really important. Um, you know, and we have, and and it's and it's not just. I think let's make cluster X in this place here. It's actually we have, you know, the industrial revolution happened here. We have communities that still resonate with 
different types of sectors. And it's really interesting culturally when you talk to different communities, how they feel their place in the countries and where that fits alongside specific um, technologies. You know, it's a, a great example is when we were talking about fracking and you went to Devon versus Cornwall and you got a polar opposite shift in their response to fracking because Cornwall had a history of mining and understood kind of that underground space and Devon had a very different culture. So right next door to each other, polar different response to a specific technology. And that's to do with the cultural legacy of the place. Right? And you see this in many of, of, of our industrial um, sectors across the UK. Um, yes, I'm in Imperial College and I'm not going to use that geometric term that you use because I don't think it's helpful. Um, I do think there is a really strong case for, and, and this is kind of the idea that I was saying, this, the idea of the innovation bridge. How do you connect different places in the UK? We have excellent bits of research in all these technologies in many of our universities saying that you can only do um, chemical processing if you're at Newcastle or Durham because that's where that technology, that's then missing all of the great work that goes on in all of the other universities, not just in the Southeast. So how do you enable, I think, that broader network bridges to take ideas from wherever they're generated into this space where they will grow, develop, and benefit not just the local community, but the, the whole of the UK? So I, I think thinking nationally, thinking strategically nationally, I think is really important. I just Can I give you one an anecdote on that? We, you mentioned Strength in Places Fund. We were explicitly told we weren't allowed to apply for that together with Teesside because that wasn't in remit. Wow. So, you know, we know you've got brilliant ideas and they could use it, but there was this ideological problem. Like, you're not next door, so you can't do it. I think some of those, and that's why I talk about ideology a little bit, I think it's the national piece is important. Thank you very much. And that does bring us to the end of our time. So thank you very much to all of our panelists, to Chi, to Mary, Chris, Catherine, and to Giles.